Hey there, how's it going? This is James Tripp. This is Agents of Everything. It is episode number 17. We're looking at self-transformation, self-change here. And we're looking at it through a very specific idea, which is that you cannot change what you cannot see. I'm going to keep this reasonably tight around this idea, or at least that's my intention at the front end of the podcast, but we shall see how it unfolds. First thing I want to make clear is when I'm talking about you cannot change what you cannot see, I'm talking about pretty much any changes you may want to make in your life intentionally. Okay? Intentionally, right? That is true whether it's something in your environment or your circumstances you want to change. Okay? And you may want to strategically and tactically engage with those things and make a change. You still got to see what's going on. You've got to look to see what's there. Go, okay, I can see that, that that's over there and I want it over there. Okay? Um, But I'm also talking more specifically about internal changes. I think I've talked previously in the Agents of Everything podcast about the be, do, have model. That how we are being in ourselves shapes how we show up and engage with the world. That's do, that's the do of be, do, have, which in turn shapes the kind of results that we tend to get. That's the having, be, do, have. So it's talking about how we create from the inside out. Right? Now, when I'm talking about our being, I'm talking about everything that we are in terms of our patterns of behavior, our patterns of response, our patterns of cognition, our belief sets, how we see things. All of this stuff creates who we are and how we are. And a lot of people say, I remember Alan Watts saying in an audio many, many years ago, I absolutely disagree with this, that we cannot change ourselves because we cannot kind of look at ourselves and see ourselves. So, you know, having a thing change itself, things can only be changed from the outside. I disagree. I think this is one of the interesting, unique features of human consciousness is that we can bring our intention and our awareness back to bear upon ourselves and therefore consciously participate in our own personal evolution and self-transformation, right? I think this is the thing that's probably unique to human beings. And I would even argue, and I have argued elsewhere, that this is the very function of human consciousness and awareness. It's not about doing things, it's about changing things. Consciousness and awareness is about changing things, not doing things, right? But we can only be conscious of and aware of what we are able to see and perceive. And this creates a sort of weird house of mirrors effects because we can only perceive as we conceptualize, right? And this is why some people say you can't change yourself. I'm going to argue that you can. I sometimes call it bootstrapping, that is consciously participating in your own self transformation. So one other thing I want to say up front here, when I'm talking about seeing here, I'm talking about perceiving in a more general sense. I don't mean merely seeing with the eyes. That may include feeling into it, It may include ripples of thought, subtleties, subtle perceptions you can't even put your finger on. Simply the ability to perceive through whatever medium, through sight, sound, feelings, felt, sense, thoughts, pictures, whatever, whatever it might be. Right? And even pre-linguistic things, very subtle things. But this is what we're talking about. You cannot change what you cannot see. Now, when you say this, it's actually pretty self-evident. But people don't recognize the degree to which it can create blocks to self-evolution, to self-transformation, to self-learning. Right? Because a lot of us fall for these innate cognitive biases. I've often said it before. We human beings fundamentally fall 
for the cognitive bias. What I see is all there is and how I see it is how it is. Okay, what I see is all there is and how I see it is how it is. If what I see is all there is and how I see it is how it is, but the change I want to make is outside of my current seeing, how can I change it? How? How can I change it? Now, if you want to be able to change things within yourself, you have to be able to witness them. But it's very difficult to witness our own processes. We human beings are by default very poor witnesses to our own processes. You'll have heard me say it before. I may even have said it already in this podcast. So in order to learn to pay attention to witness ourselves, this is a skill. It's not always easy. And some people find it more challenging than others. So we want to be able to see what we want to be able to change in order to be able to affect change. We also want to be able to see that it's possible to affect change. Okay, so this is a matter of seeing as well. Now, um, I'm a professional coach. I'm a professional change work practitioner. So people pay me to help them make changes. And one of the ways that I'm able to contribute for a lot of people is being able to see things that they can't see, see things in their organization of reality. They're used to seeing the world through their organization of reality. So they're not used to bringing their attention to their organization of reality, right? You want to know what somebody believes, you can't ask them because they don't know, right? They act from their beliefs. They don't have them all held consciously. So the people's deepest beliefs, deepest organizations of reality, they're outside of their seeing. So part of what I'm often doing when I'm helping people make changes, I'm going, can you see this? I'm pointing them towards seeing things. It's only when they can see those things or perceive those things, they're able to make changes. Now, it might seem like, well, you know, uh, if I'm a professional change work guy, professional coach, people come along, I go, look, can you see this? Okay. And a lot of the time, uh, if people are very open to coaching, they have a right kind of a mindset. They have a mindset where they're, they're willing to step into the unknown, right? They're willing to accept that they may not be able to see things. There may be things they cannot see. Then it's very easy to help them direct their consciousness in useful and generative ways. But that is not how everybody shows up for coaching, for change work, for therapy, whatever. Not everybody shows up that way. There's a term which is ancient in the world of therapy, which is called resistance. This means that a client is resistant to change. And I'm an NLP guy. So one of the basic tenets of NLP is there's no such thing as a resistant client, only an inflexible change agent. And that's a kind of a reframe to stop people dismissing the client as simply resistant. There's nothing we can do with them. They're resistant, right? But it's not a truth. I think it's useful to look at the idea of resistance, resistance to change, not just when you're working with other people, but in your own self and your own life. If you want to be effective at transforming yourself, it's useful to be able to recognize where resistance to change might come up within yourself and how to outmaneuver that, okay? Now, I want to be clear here about the term resistance. Resistance isn't like a binary term. Someone is resistant or they're not. Resistance is, it's a kind of like about conductivity, right? If you look at electrical conductors, some things conduct better than others and some things don't conduct at all. So often what we're looking to do is increase conductivity. Okay, if we want to get change, we need to increase conductivity, i.e. reduce resistance, right? If we want stability, we want to increase resistance, 
Okay, so if people come to me for change, I want to increase conductivity, so to speak. I want to get them into receptive states where they're open-minded. They're open to seeing things they haven't seen. They're open to doubting their cherished truths, right? Because there's nothing that blocks new seeing more than certainty about how things are, more than certainty in what I see is all there is and how I see it is how it is. Single biggest blocker of change that there might be. So I want to talk a little bit here about this kind of resistance. And this counts if we're looking to change ourselves. Am I resistant to change within myself? How do I create that resistance to change? And perhaps if you are looking to influence other people in changing their seeing and their being. So resistance. There are two forms that resistance can take, or two fonts from which resistance can bubble, so to speak. And they sometimes show up together in people. One of them is what you might call flat-out polarity responding. Now, flat-out polarity responding is a tendency to argue against any suggestion, any new idea, anything that comes up, right? It's like a habit of mind. It's like a psychological immune system to argue against new ideas, almost reflexively. Some people have a lot of this going on. We all do it to some degree. You know, we don't just accept every new idea, every new thought that comes our way. But some people's default is immediately to jump to this, uh, no, that's not so, or if that were true, then it would be that. So to argue against any new idea, any new input. In hypnosis, I'm trained in hypnosis, so I make use of some of the ideas, concepts, and tools from that world. There's this idea of the critical faculty. And it's a guy called uh, Dave Elman, famous hypnotherapist, wrote the book Hypnotherapy, literally wrote the book on hypnotherapy, the original book, Hypnotherapy. And he, his definition of hypnosis was that, was that hypnosis is the bypassing of the critical faculty, right? The critical faculty is that argumentative sort of reason that says, no, that isn't so, no, that couldn't be right because of this, da, 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 that rejects everything, right? And when that has come offline and somebody's open, now you can give new structures, new ideas, new suggestions, often new ways of seeing, and people will explore with them and get to witness in themselves what those new ways of being and seeing create, get to evaluate for themselves whether they're better or worse and take on those changes. But none of that can happen if the critical faculty is just kicking in, kicking in, kicking in. Now, in a sense, the critical faculty is a manifestation of an addiction to certainty. Some people are not comfortable with uncertainty. But ironically, if we stay in our old certainties, nothing changes. In order to profit, you must invest in loss. That means opening to doubt, right? Because doubt actually is the portal to possibility. Okay, so in a sense, a lot of people who have got a real addiction to certainty and have a high critical faculty response, they don't feel comfortable with uncertainty because uncertainty just seems like threat. What they don't see is that there's genuine possibility, that the only place that possibility can live is in, not necessarily uncertainty, but doubt. So doubt is powerful. And I've often said this, doubt and certainty are like twin forces in life. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. They're like a yin and a yang. So you've got the yin of doubt and the yang of certainty. We want to be, uh, if we're to be masters of ourselves, we want to be able to 
use doubt and use certainty, right? Not be had by doubt or had by certainty, right? If somebody lived 100% in doubt, they could never do anything in their life. They would never be able to act. They would never be able to move. They'd never be able to do anything. But when somebody lives 100% in certainty, they often get wrong-footed by inflexibility. Because when the world mismatches their certainties about it, which is going to be very, very, very often, they get thrown off kilter. They get bad results. Bad things happen, right? And the only way to adapt is to let go of the certainty. But if the person's response to letting go of certainty is fear and panic, which it is for some people, then they will grip back tightly with certainty. And they will get back into arguing about what is or isn't so. Their critical faculty will come back online. You end up with stasis, but also rigidity and inflexibility, okay? There's a kind of illusion of resilience in it until there's not, you know, until the whole system collapses and breaks down because in order to have true resilience, you need a certain degree of flexibility. Okay, so that's the first place that resistance can come from. It can come from an unwillingness to go into the realm of doubt, an unwillingness to let go of certainty or a processing of threat in letting go of certainty, and therefore out comes that person fighting. And it might be a person that you're working with, you're looking to influence, a person you're looking to open their mind to different ways of seeing. But it might be yourself as well. Where do you find yourself reacting defensively or clinging tightly to certainty or arguing reflexively against new ideas that may offer new possibilities and new choices to you? Okay, so that's one place that you can get uh, kind of resistance coming from. The second place that you can get resistance coming from is simply just not seeing. It's pre-contemplation. Okay, now I use that term pre-contemplation. I'm referencing something called the cycle of change by a couple of therapists, I think they were, they may have been social workers, I don't know, uh, called Prochaska and Di Clementi. Those are their last names. Can't remember their first names. Prochaska and Di Clementi. And they have a book, I think it's called Change for Good, but their model is quite famous. They interviewed a lot of people, I think initially in the area of, it might have been smoking or alcohol addiction. It's years since I read this book, but they, whichever one they started with, they went on to the other and then they went into other areas as well. And their work, I think, influenced what later on was developed as motivational interviewing. Right? I could have my facts a bit skewed here, but there is a relationship between Prochaska and Di Clementi and their cycle of change and the idea of motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing, by the way, is simply the art and craft of being able to get into dialogue with somebody and bring out their motivations, to grow an intrinsic motivation within them to take particular acts or actions. It's not about controlling people or making people do things or manipulating. It really does respect people's sovereignty. It's a very powerful set of ideas, by the way, but that's slightly off topic here. I want to talk about Prochaska and De Clemente's cycle of change, how it relates to resistance and how it relates to specifically what we're talking about here. You cannot change what you cannot see. So Prochaska and De Clemente, they pointed out, they asked people questions. They found that people who transcended alcoholism or smoking or these kinds of habits went through a cycle, a cycle of change. And the first point of that cycle is pre-contemplation, what they called pre-contemplation, okay? I'll give you the cycle quickly, then I'll go over the positions on the cycle in a little bit more detail. It is pre-contemplation first. That moves to contemplation, which moves to preparation, 
which moves to action, which moves to maintenance, which moves to transcendence. Okay, so this cycle of change, they would say that people need to go through all these steps in order to make a change. And they're talking about big lifestyle changes here, right? Mainly they're talking about, they're not talking about more subtle, what I would call mind shifts. You don't need to go through all these steps to get a mind shift, but you will go through many mind shifts as you go through these steps, okay? Now, pre-contemplation, this is the stage where somebody has a problem, but they don't think they have a problem, okay? They have a problem, but they don't think they have a problem. I'm aware, as I've just said this, that somebody go, well, if the person doesn't think they have a problem, then surely they don't have a problem. It's not a problem to them. This is very common in areas like alcoholism or addictions, this kind of thing. So you might have somebody who is drinking a lot, and maybe so far as they're concerned, it's not really a big deal, okay? They just like a drink. But actually, it's leading to them being flaky, being perhaps argumentative with people or losing their temper or whatever. Their drunkenness is creating problems in their relationships, perhaps their professional work life, whatever. It's messing things up. It's causing difficulties for them, but they're kind of not really seeing it, okay? They're not really seeing it. So they'd be in pre-contemplation. I don't have a problem. I just like a drink. I just like to unwind with a drink. But maybe the person's spouse sees there's a problem and maybe it actually is causing a problem in terms of their relationship and their relating. Okay, so they're not seeing the problem. And what Prochaska and Di Clementi point out is they cannot make a change when they're not seeing this problem. Right? How can they possibly bring any intention or volition to making a change to something they don't even see as a problem, unaware of it, right? So what Prochaska and Di Clementi would say is, well, you can't really do anything at that stage, but you can. I mean, there are certain things you can do to attempt to get somebody to recognize that perhaps there's something that could be being addressed here that they're not addressing, right? There are subtle things, but you're going to work in a particular way if you're helping somebody make change at that level. You can't help yourself make change at that level because if you can't, you, you know, you can't self-facilitate because if you can't see that there's a problem, how could you possibly bring any intentionality to it? You can't do anything with it. So for self-change, certainly, and generally for a lot of change, but definitely for self-change, things can only start happening when somebody gets into the contemplation phase. I think something is amiss here. I think something isn't as I would like it to be or as it quote-unquote should be or whatever. At that point, one can start bringing one's faculties to bear upon remedying the problem. And then, you know, the rest of the cycle, like preparation, that's somebody getting ready to do something, there's action, they're taking action, they're now implementing a program or they're seeing a therapist or whatever that action may be. And then they continue that action, that's um, maintenance. If you maintain the doing of the difference in life, until it becomes the new normal, that's transcendence. So that's the cycle of change. By the way, Prochaska and Di Clementi pointed out that very rarely do people go smoothly through the cycle. They will toggle. They may go three steps and then go back. They may go forward four steps, back two. They may go forward two, back three, and then forward four, right? So people can cycle. They could go between pre-contemplation and contemplation, right? They can go into contemplation, then they can just go, ah, screw it, you know, whatever. Just let it be as it is. Now, I want to look at this first step. The whole process starts with that shift from pre-contemplation to contemplation. Remember the topic we're looking at here. You cannot change what you cannot see. Now, here's the thing. 
oftentimes people think they can see, but actually they cannot. Because the thing that is the real hub of the problem is not where they think it is. So I'll give you an example of this. There's somebody I happen to know. I, I know a couple of people like this, actually. I've, I've known for many years who seem to fall out with a lot of people. They seem to make a lot of enemies. And I'm not saying it's all about them, but there seems to be a pattern there. But if you were to ask them about that, they would pick each one of those people and say, well, they had a problem with this, and that was a problem, and that was a problem, and that was a problem. They don't see themselves as a common denominator, and perhaps that their mode of engaging is part of what's creating these falling outs. Right? So there's one example. I can give many, many other examples, but this actually comes up quite a lot in one particular area of change work that I do. When I'm working for myself doing adaptive coaching, people come to me via my website or they've heard my materials or whatever, and they go, I want to engage James as an agent of change. I want to get him to help me make a change. Most of those people show up with quite high degrees of willingness to look at their lives in a variety of different ways and this kind of thing. And as such, they're open to the idea that it's actually them that might have to change. They're very open to that idea. I mean, why would you hire a change work practitioner who specializes in making internal personal changes, self-transformation, if you didn't think you needed to change? But there's another context that I work in as well. I also work with the organization Rock to Recovery. I do one day a week with them. And the people that are coming in there, they're just coming in there because life's got on top of them. They're not coming in there to do change work. They're coming in because they're desperate. So they might find themselves in a situation where they're distressed, but they see the problem as lying in the world, perhaps, rather than within how they're meeting the world. And I can relate to this myself. When I was much younger, I had a lot of anxiety and fear. But it was only when I was in my early 20s that I realized that it was me, that I actually had an issue. And this can seem like a, a weird thing. I remember I showed up at a friend of mine's house and I knocked on his door and he opened the door and I burst in. I said to him, I've just realized my entire life is ruled by fear. And how could you just realize that? You know, how could a person just realize that? If their life was dominated by fear, how could they not notice? I couldn't see the fact that I was a fearful person. I could only see that the world was a scary place, right? Now, I offer this as an illustration of how you cannot change what you cannot see. I knew my life wasn't right. I knew there were problems. I was desperately miserable with my life. So it wasn't that I had pre-contemplation about the crappy quality of my life. I could see absolutely clearly life sucks, right? That's how I saw it at the time. My life sucks, right? I don't like a lot of things. But it seemed like the things I didn't like were the problem, not my disliking of the things, right? Can you hear that shift? It seemed that the things I didn't like were the problem rather than my disliking of the things. I had no ownership of my response. I had no ownership of my reactions. I had no ownership of my sense-making. I was simply a victim to things in the world, a victim of circumstances, a victim of how I thought things were. I didn't realize that they weren't how I thought they were. That was just how I thought they were. So that's a subtler example of pre-contemplation. I was in a contemplation phase 
but about the wrong things. My sense-making was directing my attention to the wrong place, the place where I did not have power. Okay? So when I say you cannot change what you cannot see, what I'm saying is this. If you want to make changes to your life, the place that you have power is within. Right? It's not in the circumstances of the world. It's how you show up and engage with those circumstances. So happiness is an inside job. Well-being is an inside job. Results creation is an inside job. It's an inside-out job. It's a transformation of what's within so it unfolds out differently. A lot of people, their attention is perpetually on the world. They're looking at what strategies, what tactics do I need to deploy to make that thing happen or make that thing happen or make that thing happen. I remember absolutely years ago, I went to this event and it was for coaches. It was a sort of a, an event on how you could market your business. And there were lots of speakers there. There was lots of good advice, lots of good strategies and tactics for marketing the business. But I was talking to a lot of the coaches there, and it seemed to me the real issue was not that they lacked tactics and strategies. It was that they lacked clarity in who they were and what it is that they did. They didn't have a solid self-concept, a strong sense of self as a coach. That was the real issue. So the real change, and by trying to implement these strategies and tactics, many of them would end up trying to shoot a cannon from a canoe, right? I love that metaphor, you cannot shoot a cannon from a canoe. You've got to create a good, solid base. That comes from how you are being, how you are showing up, and how you're engaging. Now, I coached a lot of people across the years looking to grow their businesses, right? Sometimes people come to me as a consultant more than as a coach because I've had some success in creating a business as an independent life path creator. So people have come to me for input on that. And that seems like easy work because you just go, well, here you go, you do this, you do this, you do this. But very rarely do people find themselves able to do the things that I've done in the way that I've done them. And they shouldn't do either. They should do things their way. But the point is this, when it comes to doing any deeper work, which I might see might be required for them to be able to implement those strategies and tactics, they often just don't want to do it. They just want the strategies and tactics. And so, you know, they end up going a lot less further than they could because they didn't do that deeper work and didn't create the foundation. Really, the reason they're not creating what they want to create in their life is because they're laying low or they're hanging back. And they're laying low and they're hanging back because of their doubts and their fears. But they cannot see their doubts and fears. They're only seeing the world through them and seeing the world created as big and scary as a result. But what they're not doing is looking within to where they have power to make a change. They're not owning their own creative engagement in their own experience. So until you can look at yourself and witness yourself and go, how is it that I'm being? What are my habitual responses? You can't change them, okay? Now, this is on multiple levels. And a lot of people, by the way, they have a resistance to looking at themselves with a clear set of eyes. My father was an engineer. He used to say, in order to solve a problem, you need to first look to see what's there. A lot of people are afraid to look at themselves because they put too much meaning on what they see. So if they see a limitation or a shortcoming or something that's not being done well, they make it mean something about who they are, something painful, which just compounds the problem and it clouds their vision. They cannot look 
clearly. So the first thing, if you want to start to be able to look at yourself and witness yourself, become a better witness to your own processes, recognize that however you do anything, whatever your tendencies, whatever you see, it doesn't say anything about who you are. It's only telling you something about what you've been doing up until now, right? People are not their behavior as they see in NLP. You are not any particular habit of mind or habit of thought. That is not who you are, okay? Who you are is infinitely more than that. It may contribute something to how you're engaging, but it's not literally who you are, not that one thing. So you're safe to look at anything and go, well, isn't that a curious thing? What is it that's happening here? So if you want to be able to transform yourself, the first thing you want to be able to do is be a good, clear witness. Be able to witness yourself, witness your processes of mind, witness your habits of being, and do so from a place of equanimity without judgment. Because it's only when you can start to look at these things that you stand a chance of changing them, right? Go, okay, so how am I creating that? How am I creating my angry response, for example? Right? Do I have an angry response? A lot of people don't take ownership of their own responses. So they'll go, I'm not angry. It's just that you did X, Y, and Z. And clearly they are angry, right? I had this shift years ago. I remember exactly where I was at the time. I was sat in my front office back where I used to live. And I was sat there, I was doing some work. And my wife came in and she had some exchanges with me, just talking about various things, what we needed to do throughout the day. And I was a bit snippy, probably, with her. Now, most people have probably had this experience of being a bit irritable or a bit snippy or whatever, or maybe it's just me, I don't know. But then thinking they're justified in that because of X or looking for some justification for it. And she said to me, are you in a mood? And I went, no, I'm just da-da-da-da-da. And then I thought, even if that were the reason why I was in a mood, I'm still in a mood. So it would be more honest to go, yes, I am in a mood, right? And I'm always interested. You know, I say to people all the time, when I'm coaching, I say, who owns your moods? Who owns them? Almost everybody says, I do. And I say, okay, so what are you choosing in relation to your mood? Or who owns your attitude? People say, I do. A lot of the time they forget that and they act as if outside forces are creating their attitude or outside forces are creating their mood. And of course, what's going on outside influences us. Nothing doesn't influence us. We're always influenced, right? It's not about not being influenced. It's about taking ownership for where you have choice. But you can't look at your own inner responses, your own inner landscape. You can't recreate new habits of being and engagement if you're not willing to look and go, oh, look, that's how I've tended to be up until now. Or when you pause inside of a moment and go, well, what is it that's really happening here? So instead of, um, well, you know, people shouldn't speak to me like that. It's like, okay, so what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? How am I creating that? Oh, I'm creating that through a belief, a demand, an attachment that people shouldn't treat me like this. That's a personal demand, right? Now I can see that. Can I create a different choice around it? Well, I can create the choice of seeing that there is no rule in the universe that says that, but it's not really a must. It's a preference, right? So I'm just giving that as an example. And, and part of what I would call personal mastery is having ways of seeing and witnessing one's own processes 
that give you different choices in how you move forward from there. Okay, it's about inner choice. Now, when I say inner choice, I do not mean always a conscious choice. So sometimes when I talk about personal mastery in terms of an increase in personal choice, people equate choice with lots of conscious choice and therefore dilemma and therefore clunky processes. Right? If I have to do a lot of decision-making about what choice I'm going to make, well, how is that a good way of living? It's not like that at all. I want to give you an analogy right here. I've probably used this before. Um, I've, I've definitely used it before, but whether you've heard it listening to this is another question. If you take somebody who is a really, really good basketball player versus me, all right, put me on a basketball court, I don't really know what to do. I don't have many choices in how I effectively engage in a game of basketball because I just have hardly ever played it. Right? But you take a really good basketball player and in each moment of the game, they have a whole rich array of choices. Now, that does not mean they're consciously engaging with those choices, right? Because they have mastery in that area very quickly and outside of consciousness, they're running a rapid array of those choices and selecting their best bet and acting on it all in the blink of an eye, all in a state of flow, right? When people talk about performance states, high levels of engagement, they often talk about flow states. And one might assume, well, flow, a flow state, surely that's not about choice because we're just flowing along. We're not there making choices. But we are making choices. It's just those choices are real time and very dynamic and happening within the flow. So a good basketball player has more choices than a mediocre basketball player, and those will unfold within a state of flow. So it's not analysis paralysis, it's not decision-making. This is the same with increasing your personal choices about how you see yourself, your own processes, what's possible for you. This is why I've talked in earlier episodes of Agents of Everything about sense-making, because sense-making creates your seeing, right? The sense that you make creates the choices available to you. If you cannot see through that sense, you cannot have the choice that it offers. So I gave the example just now of, you know, if I'm getting angry or upset because I've got an unhealthy attachment to something being a particular way, I have a, uh, an elevated sense of importance that it must come out that way and it will be absolutely terrible if it doesn't. If I'm caught in that, but I cannot see that mechanism and I cannot see how that internal mechanism is creating a disempowered response, I have no choice around it. But if I can see that mechanism, right, I can go, that's what's going on. And then I can create a different choice, right? I can live into people shouldn't treat me like this, or I can live into, you know what, there's no rule in the universe that says people should treat me any particular way I might demand, right? And how they treat me doesn't change who I am. So this different way of making sense, it's not trying to convince myself of a truth, it's a different way of seeing. I'm able to shift my seeing. This was my point earlier when I said mind shifts don't have to go through the cycle of change. They can happen in a moment. They can happen in an instance. Only when somebody is open to them. They cannot happen when somebody is resistant to them, when they fall for the illusion of what I see is all there is and how I see it is how it is. Right? If they have complete certainty that their current way of seeing is the only way of seeing. So this is what I'm saying here. You cannot change what you cannot see. 
It pays to become a better witness to what's going on. And what I would suggest is when you are looking at what's going on within yourself, within your life, whatever, don't be trying to chase the truth about what's going on. Chase instead different ways of seeing what's going on, right? Not the truth, not the singular truth. I must get the truth. It's like, well, maybe it's like this, or maybe it's like that. What if it's like this? If it's like this, what choices does this create for me? If it's like that, what choices does that create for me? So you're always looking at how different ways of looking at something and making sense of it creates a different set of choices. I was thinking about this this morning when I was playing guitar, right? I've got this thing, if I'm playing something on guitar, if I want to get the most from it, if I want to learn the most from what I'm playing, I want to attempt to understand what I'm playing. I don't just want to learn a tune by rote off a YouTube video. I want to go, well, what's going on within this tune? What are the relationships, right? What patterns can I see on the fretboard within the relationship of sounds, this kind of thing? And what are the different ways I can look at this? What are the different frameworks I can look at it through? If I can find three different ways of looking at it, three different ways of making sense, then my inner mind, my deeper mind does generative magic with it. Did I do a podcast called Three is the Magic Number? Or did I do that somewhere else? I think I did that in one of my private groups. Okay, so um, let's just recap what we're talking about here. Agents of everything. It's about personal mastery. It's about how you show up and engage with the world and having choice in how you create generatively with it. You know, what comes your way, create with what comes up. There's a bias towards increasing personal power, increasing adaptiveness. That's what serves in being able to create with what comes up rather than just being swept away or washed away by what comes up in your life. How you show up. Your flexibility, your adaptiveness, your ability to respond in a variety of different ways rather than get stuck in one, okay? To be like that basketball player who's in flow, who's got a deep, profound understanding of the game and sees many possibilities in the moment and can act in flow. To build this capability within yourself in terms of personal mastery, self-transformation, involves becoming a better witness to your own processes because you cannot change what you cannot see. You cannot bring intentionality to changing that. And in becoming a better witness to your own process, it starts with being curious. It starts with being curious about what's going on, right? How am I creating this? One of my favorite questions that I ask myself a lot of the time is, what is it that's happening here? Now, when I ask that question of myself, I'm curious about multiple dimensions. If I was getting into uh, an argument with somebody that was escalating, I might ask myself, what is it that's happening here? I'd be asking about the patterns of exchange between me and the other person, but I'd also be asking about my internal experience and response, right? Oh, I seem to be getting upset and agitated. Okay, how might that be feeding in? Not particularly well. What might be creating this upset and agitation, right? What is it that I'm not okay with? What is it that I'm not willing to accept and work with in a flexible way here? I might want to x-ray what's going on at a deeper level, okay? In a sense, personal mastery happens at two levels. The first level is your ability to witness your own experience, okay? Witness your own experience and make choices in relation to that experience. So let me say that again. Witness your own experience and make choices in relation to that experience. That's very different from witnessing our own experience and then 
tumbling down a cascade of inferences that lead to a bad place. There's no choice involved in that, but that's a very human thing to do, right? So I'll give you an example of witnessing my own experience of making a choice in relation to that. Let's say I have a pain in my knee, right? I could have low levels of consciousness around the details of that and just go, my knee hurts. Ugh. It's killing me. It's so painful. I could live into a story of the pain and how the pain is debilitating me. Right? Then I would have gone on a default cascade of storytelling and inference, which would have further fed back into the experience in probably a way that would amplify it. Right? Or I could go, okay, so what's happening with my knee? There's a sensation there. And how would I like to be able to be with this, given that it's here with me right now? Right, And I might choose to be with it in a relaxed way, in a way that just allows it. It's just okay, the pain can stick around until it's taught me what it needs to teach me, right? or until it's finished doing the job that it's here to do. I could be at peace with the pain. And then when I'm at peace with it, it stops being pain, because even the label pain is a part of the story that is creating the experience. And so I can choose to experience it differently, merely as discomfort. I can start to change the narrative, change the framing, change the experience. I can create a change in how I am relating, right? There might be somebody out there listening to this who's got chronic pain issues and they go, oh, it's easy for you to say, James, you know, okay. Like I'm not a guy that's not had pain in my life, right? You know, I've had disc problems and all sorts of things. I understand that pain can be debilitating, but that doesn't take away our choices in how we meet it. We always have choice in how we meet it. That is not to say that we can control it, but we can significantly transform the experience. We can attenuate it through changing our relating to it. If you're listening to this, you're thinking, well, I have chronic pain and I can't do that. That doesn't reflect a deficiency upon your part. Absolutely not. Nobody knows how to do these things by default. They are things that are learned. They are mental skills, but they are skills nonetheless that can be learned. And I'm just using pain as an example here. We can always have choice in how we meet our experiences, whatever they are. I've said this before. Anything I can't immediately change, I treat as circumstances. Okay, if I have a pain that I can't click my fingers and make it go away, I treat it as circumstances. But within all circumstances, there is always choice. There are never any circumstances in which we have no choice. Right? If you're into tarot, that kind of thing, I like the tarot de Marseille to me. That's the message of the hanged man. He's hung upside down by his foot. The rope is binding tight into the ankle. His hands are bound behind his back. That's circumstances. But freedom lies within the choice within those circumstances. And there's always choice. I love the book Papillon. And I love the bits where he gets incarcerated and he's in solitary confinement. And he creatively finds freedom within those highly oppressive circumstances. So that's one place that we can seriously up our personal mastery is in our ability to witness our experiences and make choices in relation to that experience. I don't just mean witness external circumstances like papillon and make choices in relation to them. I'm talking about what comes up within us, okay? Am I doubting myself? Am I hanging back in life? If I can witness myself doubting, I can make choices in relation to that. If I cannot witness myself doubting, I will just be unconsciously had by it. It will create a trance of self-doubt that will drag me down. 
but my ability to witness it, to hold it as object rather than be subject to it, puts me in a position where I can make choices in relation to it. Now, the choices in relation to it aren't always self-evident. Sometimes those choices in relation to it, they're learned. That is part of what I do when I'm coaching people, when I'm doing adaptiveness coaching. I am coaching them in choices they can make in relation to their own experience. Now, some people will be open to those choices. They will explore with those choices. They will see what they discover when they use those choices like tools. Other people might go, oh, no, that wouldn't work for me, and they never even try it out. Okay? So I would advocate to anybody, if you're looking to explore with new choices in your life, always explore with those choices first before dismissing them rather than thinking you know what will or won't work out of time. That's just a piece of side advice that I'm dropping in here. The other thing you can do, so I've said you can witness your own experience and make choices in relation to it, or, and this is an and or, you can x-ray your experience, right? You can x-ray your experience and go, what is creating this experience? For me, these are the two powerful paths to self-transformation. So let's say I have an experience of feeling insecure. Let's say I label it as insecure. It's a desire to hang back, to lay low, whatever, to not assert myself in a situation. That's the experience I'm having. So I can become aware of that experience and go, okay, so I've got this experience and how do I want to meet this? What do I want to do with this, right? What do I want to do next? And I can make choices in relation to it. Or I can x-ray it and go, how am I creating this? What is it that I'm believing underneath of this that is creating this? What is the wanting that is underneath of this? What is the fearing that is underneath of this? What am I believing must be true? And there are certain clues you get. Usually attachments, these sorts of things are creating low states, demands that things must be a certain way, right? And once I can get into that, then I've dropped through the state to a deeper level. And I would drop into a different layer and that will have an experience in and of itself. And I can then choose how I relate to that, right? I'll give you an example of this. Let's say, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a sad and sorry example. It probably says something about my past or my deep psyche. But let's say I found myself as a young man, which I did sometimes, where I would be at a party and yet I would feel completely lonely and alone. This was an experience I used to have. Okay, so my experience is one of feeling lonely and alone in the company of others. That's the experience. So I could meet that experience and go, oh, okay, I'm having an experience of feeling lonely and alone. And uh, what is it that I want to do with that? Right? If I've got choices, I can go, do I really want to live into that or buy into that? Or do I want to just kind of like make a choice to go out and go crazy anyway? Okay, so I can make a choice in relation to it. But I could also go, what is this feeling about this aloneness, right? What is the core need behind it, right? And maybe it's the need to be loved and accepted. It's like, oh, I have a need to be loved and accepted, and therefore I have a fear in this moment that I might not be being loved and accepted, right? That will be a hypothesis as to some of the structure that's underneath. That will be like x-raying it. Once I've got that, I can go, oh, does that feel right? Oh, yeah. I need to be loved and accepted. How would it be if I were to let go of this? How would my life be different if I were to let go of the need to be loved and accepted and know that I was okay anyway? Right? How would it be? 
and I can find different levels and different layers of choice. Now, again, I'm just giving that as a simple example, but all of these are skills. They are skills of choice making, perspective shifting, this kind of thing. And they are about a sort of internal mental agility or flexibility. And this stuff can be learned. It's not to be dismissed. If anybody doubts their experience is mind-made or hugely shaped and colored and flavored by mind, then, well, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast anyway, because you're doomed to be only ever a victim of circumstances. Okay. And I would advocate that you can be so much more than that, that you already are so much more than that. All right. I think we said enough right now. If you appreciate some of what's been shared in this podcast, and I'm aware, by the way, that this isn't necessarily beginner's material that I'm sharing here. This isn't uh, the five-step process on how to change your life. I'm aware that this is some richer stuff. Some people will find it to be relatively beginner's material, and other people will go, well, hang on a second. Uh, I need a little bit more clarity over this stuff. But if you've got value from it, please do rate the podcast, give it some love wherever you're listening. And if you would like to be able to interact with me more, check out the Agents of Everything Substack. So please do go on there. Please do subscribe on there. Just your subscribing there helps to, let me say it, motivate me to continue to produce these podcasts for people because I like to get a little bit of love back for it. Uh, if you've got any questions around anything that I've shared in this podcast, also please do feel free to ask on the Substack or any other topics you'd like me to put some energy on. I'd be very happy to do that. Okay, I thank you for being here and I look forward to when we next connect.